This paid podcast is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. All uses of trademarks or brands are not meant to convey sponsorship or affiliation of this podcast. From Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate, this is The Relentless, a podcast about looking at sales differently. What if? What if I thought outside the box? What if it was more of a celebration with our clients than work? In every episode, we're pulling back the curtain with thought leaders across industries and talking about how they embrace change, overcome hurdles, and stay relentless. I'm Dr. Julie Gerner. I've spent over a decade studying the behaviors of the ultra-successful and have used those insights to empower business leaders in finance, technology, and real estate. Negotiation comes up a lot in life, whether it's buying a house, negotiating your salary, or even compromising with your partner. It can trigger a roller coaster of emotions. It's exhilarating when both sides feel good about the outcome, but sometimes a deal can fall through, and it's crushing. Today, we're talking to someone who spent years on both sides of the negotiation table. He knows firsthand that negotiation is not solely about money. It's about getting creative and finding unique solutions that feel like a win for everyone involved. So I learned the hard way. You have to have people feel good about these contracts. You have to have some give and take. You can't have one-sided deals. One-sided deals don't help anyone. That's Andrew Brandt. He's a longtime sports executive with over 25 years of experience, much of it in professional football. He's been an agent representing individual athletes and an executive for professional football teams. Most notably, he served as the vice president of the Green Bay Packers. Since leaving the Packers in 2008, Andrew has become a thought leader in sports law, business, and policy. I'm executive director of the Morad Center for the Study of Sports Law at Villanova University. I also am executive vice president of Vayner Sports, run by Gary V, columnist for Sports Illustrated, host of the Business of Sports podcast. After following each other's work on social media for years, I was excited to connect with Andrew in person for the first time. Julie, I really enjoy uh, our communication via Twitter. Good to finally meet. Great to be with you. Yeah, great to meet you. In fact, your hashtag on Twitter is never peak. Mm -hmm. And I love that you're into triathlons and always pushing yourself. And I just felt like you're the perfect person to be on this podcast. So in your opinion, is being an outstanding negotiator something that can be taught or is it something that you feel is more innate? Yeah, I guess both, simply because I've taught negotiations, and so I have to say it can be taught. So I think, yes, it can be learned, some basic themes about preparation, about going into it with a plan, but also it is innate. Sometimes the easiest thing to say about a negotiation is is don't be a jerk, and, (laughs) and that can be hard. You know, in my day, especially on the team side, I dealt with a lot of screamers and a lot of red face negotiators where I learned to just sort of take it in like a pillow and absorb and then move from there. Now, I think that's an amazing skill to have, to be able to go into a room where there's clearly high emotion and be able to somehow sit with that. And I'm wondering, there are a lot of times where people negotiate, whether it's in real estate or in other types of businesses, where, you know, the stakes are high, the stress is high, people are clearly emotionally involved. What kind of methods do you use to be able to kind of take a step back and be outside of that? Yeah, and I've had to learn that. That didn't come naturally. I've always, you know, when I started out in my career, I was like, I'm going to get the best deal. I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to be this great negotiator and probably was more aggressive than I learned to be later in my career. 
but I'm a naturally kind of laid back person and it just that came more naturally than being a hard ass and going after someone. Because in sports, sometimes agents and players look at it zero-sum game and they don't know all the nuances. They're like, Dallas paid this guy X or Detroit or Denver or Tampa Bay and my guy's better, period. That's all they care about. And then I have to say, well, okay, but we have this, we have that. They don't want to hear that. But at some point, you've got to sort of make them feel like you're trying, but this is the differentiating factor. And it's very simple in their minds, but in my mind, it's like, oh, there's a lot of nuance here. you got to just hang with me. So when you have clients that you're representing, that clearly they have a number of priorities, all which for them are high priorities. How do you set their expectations so that when you go into the negotiating room, they're satisfied with the outcome? Yeah, you try to maybe undersell and overperform if you can, especially when you're representing a client that does have big time expectations. You say, well, that may not be what we're are going to get here, but maybe we can work around the edges. Because in every negotiation, you try to listen, you try to hear what are the priorities. Mm-hmm. You know, And usually in a sports negotiation, it's about how much and how much early and how much guaranteed. From a team perspective, I kind of tried to make them feel, okay, you're not going to get as much right now, but... You perform, you bet on yourself. That's a big phrase you use in sports. That's a great phrase. You bet on yourself, you'll get paid. And if you're a good agent, on the other hand, you're going to say, okay for betting ourselves, but we want security. And I've been on both sides. It's been a fortunate part of my life where I've been kind of a poster boy for harmonious for labor relations in sports. The thing that I'm fascinated about regarding negotiation is that from a psychological standpoint, you have such a unique relationship in that you both need each other, yeah. but at the same time, you need something from each other. So there's this inherent tension in the relationship. And I'm wondering kind of how you build relationship and, and build a good rapport despite having that tension in the room. Yeah, I mean, the key to any negotiation is leverage. Who has it? And leverage, I would define as the party that has leverage is the party most comfortable with the status quo. Hmm. So the party that says, if we don't get a deal, it's cool. We're okay. They have leverage. So that's where it's defined. Now, again, I mentioned I teach students and I'll advise sort of young agents with clients that don't have any leverage. And I guess my, my only point to them is really just stay in the game. Just stay in the game because you're going to get told that this is what we do. And I use that line for 10 years at the Packers with low-level players. You're going to get this, minimum salaries for three years. You're going to get this. You're going to get this. And just stay in the game. And is there anything else you can do? And the other party, they're going to say, well, you're just like all these other people. You know, why should we do anything different? And then you've got to find that special sauce. You've got to find that differentiator. Especially I tell these young people negotiating for their jobs. Okay, well, you got anything different? Would you take... More vacation time for less money? Would you take the opposite of that? Would you take a housing allowance and give up salary? I mean, these are the kind of things like find a way. One of the things that I really love is that, you know, you've had three decades, really, of negotiating experience. And certainly the world has changed as well as probably your own evolution. What are some of the lessons you've learned negotiating on behalf of clients that maybe when you started out, you were kind of in one frame of mind. And, you know, now if you were to do it, 
that you've kind of evolved on certain issues or strategies? Yeah, Julie, I'll talk about my time as I first joined the Green Bay Packers. And for people who don't know, there's no owner. We have a board of directors, but they kind of sign off on everything. We had incredible autonomy. So I had a role that if I did a $20 million contract or a $40 million contract, no one really knew if that was good or bad. And, you know, it was up to me. But I felt an incredible sense that I was working for a public trust, the magnitude of Packer fans, how, how they wrapped themselves around that team. Mm-hmm. And I was out to prove, I don't know to who, because we didn't have an owner, <laughs> but I'm going to get great deals. And I'd say the first three or four years I was at the Packers, I was stonewalling these agents. I was getting these young players to sign up for six, seven years, and they would be under market. And I'm like, pat myself on the back, and I'm killing it. And as we're sitting here today, right, that was the worst thing I could have done. It was Mm. horrible, and I learned my lesson. Because then you have players in the middle of their deals, the market has passed them by, they're pissed, and their agents are pissed, and I've lost relationships. And relationships are the key. And I learned about negotiations from that end, not so much the player side, from the team side, from management, that you can't treat people like that. So I learned the hard way, and the corollary to that is I'd have players come to me and say, Andrew, you're a cool guy. You've been an agent. I'll do it with you. I don't need an agent. Mm -hmm. And my first response was, great, because I'm thinking I'll get a great deal because they don't have the experience in negotiating, and I'll sort of inure myself with the team more. Terrible. (laughs) Because (laughs) what happened was Green Bay is so small. We had relationships, my wife, their wives, et cetera. Ruined. Ruined. Mm. Because again, as I started the conversation, they came in very simply, I'm better than this guy, give me this. And I tell them, frankly, in so many words, they weren't. And negotiations without representation are raw. They are raw. You're talking about human value. And I learned. And, you know, it it sort of set me up when I negotiate with ESPN, I learned from, I'm like, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm an experienced 25-year negotiator, but I'm not doing it. I hired an agent because I don't want to hear that their opinion of my self-worth. So I hired an agent for that. So that's interesting. The element of emotional control, yeah. I think, and personalization. You know, when you're representing another party, there's a distance there. Yeah. You know, you're able to talk about someone else, speak about someone else. How do you keep emotional control, even when representing someone like a player or, you know, if you're in real estate, you're representing a, a consumer or a customer. How do you keep that emotional control? In the it's room? hard. I mean, again, that's where relationships come in, because I always tell agents or I tell teams, you can tell me anything. You can tell me a player's worth $100 million, but back it up, because then you lose relationships when it's delusional, because when it's delusional, I define as agent just thinks he's got the greatest guy in the world. Like your kids, you know, he can do no wrong. And I said, you got to understand, that's not what he is. I really think that little things matter. And the way I define that is, again, this is, this is more than numbers. These are people. I'm a person. I'll tell you a story. One year with the Packers, we were right up against training camp. And that's when all the contracts are signed with the rookies. And I hadn't done our first round pick yet. He was a, a tough a tough one, and he was represented by a guy who's unfortunately has now deceased named Eugene Parker. And the night before camp, I'm negotiating the deals, and Mark Hatley was our director of personnel, and Mark came in to sort of say, do you need anything? 
I said, no, I'm good. You can go play golf. He said, I'm going to play golf for the last time, meaning that training camp's going to come and he's going to get all busy. Anyway, six hours later, Mark had died. Wow. Played, played golf, had a heart attack, gone. I was in serious grief and I had this incredible contract that had to get done. And a lot of pressure and grief and everything's going on. Eugene called me and said, Andrew, don't worry about this contract. Do not worry about this. We'll get this done. We'll get it done in any way you want. You grieve. I will never forget that. And every deal I did with him, I felt so comfortable after that. Like he just made a little gesture that and the, he had me forever. And that's where I say little things matter. You know, when, when you're negotiating, it's not all business. You've got to develop a relationship, feel like you're working with them. I agree. You know, the other component of that, though, is that you really have to be honest with the people yeah. that you're going to be representing. And sometimes that honesty is feedback that people don't want to hear. Having that relationship with the client seems absolutely important as much as developing that relationship at the negotiating table. Yeah. Think about sports, clients. You negotiate a contract three, four, five years, and then he's your client, and you're not negotiating anymore. So now it's like, in year two, three, or four, you have a lot of clients out there, a lot of players like sitting back, talking to their wife, girlfriend, friend. What's he doing for me? You know, like, why am I paying him every year? He did that deal three years ago. And this is where the relationship comes in because you want that client feeling great about writing you that check in year three of the contract just because. Because he did a good job back then. He's in your corner. He has your back. And every player I say, why'd you pick this agent versus that? They always, is a little bit about who he had and all that, but it really comes down to comfort level and gut feel. Like I felt I could trust him. I felt I could talk to him about more than basketball. I felt I could talk to him about my friend, you know, what's going on in my life beyond football. That's what gets these guys. Well, money gets these guys too. And in a minute, Andrew and I will talk more about negotiation and how to approach the money piece of it. But first, we wanted to tell you about an upcoming episode. Hey, listeners. Successful people always manage to find ways to stay ahead of the curve. But how exactly do you maintain confidence in your knowledge of industry trends when it's evolving constantly? We want your questions. What specific questions do you have around keeping up with and taking advantage of industry trends? We'd really like to hear from you. So send us a message. Our email address is century21pod at slate.com or tweet your question with the hashtag century21pod. Now back to the show. You know, money is a big part of the negotiation, mm -hmm. but yet focusing on it, you've said, isn't necessarily the most important thing. So how do you incorporate the level of importance that money brings, but at the same time kind of de-emphasizing it in the process of making a deal happen. Yeah, I think in any negotiation, there's a marketplace. So if you're this round draft pick, if you're this level of player, if you're this free agent, if you're this situation where another player's had a market, so you kind of know the market. And what happens is, whether you're on the team side or the player side, you're going to look at comps, as we call mm -hmm. them, comps of players that help you or hurt you. But you're right. Money is the easy thing in terms of overall, and I think a lot of reporting, now that I'm in media, you just see these big numbers, and you yeah. know what it means. And only people like me sort of say, that's not really the number. you got to look at all these markers that I looked at as a negotiator. 
What's the guarantee? What's the structure? How much early? What's the one-year cash, two-year cash, three-year cash? What are the consequences if the player's released after two or three? What are the consequences if the player does become a free agent? What's the team consequence with cap room left and all those kind of things? So you can look at deals in different ways and now stepping away these past seven years, looking at it from a media commentary, I've tried to fill a void of negotiations where you don't just go with what's reported. You don't just look at it and say, man, that guy got $100 million. You look at it like, okay, Brandt says it's not really this. It's more like this. Look at the structure. Here are strong deals and why. Here are weaker deals and why. How do you make it feel special for the client you represent? This is a big moment for someone. How do you keep them feeling like they're important, that they're special? Yeah, communication is going to be the key to that. They just want to know what's going on, what's going on. And I've had clients when I was an agent just sit by the phone knowing you're in a negotiation. And then you try to come out of it and you always try to be positive, even if the offer is not what you expected. So in those situations, I would say something like, okay, it's early. Mm-hmm. You know, their first offer was not what we expected. The first round was not mixed, but we'll keep going. We'll keep pressing. We'll keep at it. And here are some ways I think I can get to where we want. Here are some obstacles that we may not get to what we want. When I talk to Century 21 agents, they see leverage as one of the keys to their success, especially around negotiation. And to get that leverage, they use a lot of different strategies. Silence, for example, is one that tends to work fairly well. But on the flip side, there are a lot of strategies that people really think work, but don't. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are the biggest blunders that you see from early stage negotiators. Yeah, a couple of things we've talked about. One, one, I'll just comment on what you just said. Silence is a key thing here because silence sort of equates with listening. Mm-hmm. And if you are silent, people do get uncomfortable and then talk and give you information, the key to negotiating, I think, is probing without being sort of pushy. You need to find out what they really want and then reverse engineer to get them there. And you do that by listening, by asking questions, and then not saying too much on your end. So silence is a real factor. And then the blunders I've talked about with the screamers, with the aggressive negotiators, with the type A's sometimes, where they'll be like, I need to get this and Andrew, you know, and I always say this, emotion always fades. It always fades. You can't keep that up. Hmm. Do you just wait it out? Yeah, I wait it out. And I just say, maybe we should talk later or whatever it is. But like I use the example of a pillow where you sort of, you sort of take it in like, okay, you know, like you're dealing with a child because emotion always fades, but focus doesn't fade. You know, focus is the real attribute in negotiating or listening or writing or creating. You're going to get knocked down. But can you get up? Can you refocus? That's even more important than focus. Refocus. You know, emotion comes up a lot in negotiation. And, you know, I can see there being a reason to hide those visible feelings. How do you feel negotiation compares to something like poker? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bluffing angle to it. I think there's a we go back to silence And in poker, you know, like, again, I'll listen to something and there may be a hundred words coming to me, but there's three or four like, oh, they tell, that tells me what I need. Hmm. So I'll have them keep going with the other 500, but I know I got what I need. And that's kind of a poker tactic where you're sort of letting them show their hand, but you really know what's the key to their hand where 
you just get them talking. And the other part of poker, as we talk about, is bluffing and never letting see your hand is just sort of when they're looking for what I just talked about, what's the key to my position? I'm trying to just sort of let it not come out. Yeah, I was wondering, do, you, do is there a balance between transparency? Yeah. Like, how much of your needs are you going to let the other person know? And how much of that converts to honesty? Yeah. Like, that they're going to trust that you are putting it on the table, that they do understand what you need. Yeah. As a team, you care only about the team. And I would sort of let this out in negotiations. Like, listen, everything we do is precedent. I had so many players ask for this little clause or that clause, or can you do this? Or can I get a suite with tickets? Or can I get a special seats? Or can I get a car through a dealer you know? Or can I get a good deal on a house through the realtor the Packers use? And I just would say always sort of like every contract we do affects every other contract we do. And if you're working for an organization, it's so true. Poli mm. Policy and precedent are everything, everything. But I think in your poker playing, you have to let them hear bits and pieces that that's not going to work. Hmm. What else can we do? And say no, but be nice. And, you know, that's an art. That is an art. That is a real art. Saying no, but making them feel good that you're saying no. <laughs> and I'm not the best at that, but I've had negotiators that are really good at that. I really admire that. Almost saying no with a smile and how else can we get to yes? How else can we find common ground? Those are the kind of the phrases you want to use to make mm -hmm. it less adversarial. Like I always say, you can be an adversary without being an enemy. That's be an adversary saying. without being an enemy. So for you, what does a successful negotiation look like? I think the real thing as I get back to is relationships. It's not how you make, make you feel transactionally. How do you feel physically, personally, spiritually, emotionally? I mentioned the story with treating me after my friend died. Like, oh my God, that's what I come up with in my talk with you, that mm -hmm. negotiation. I don't know what we paid the guy. You know, I don't know what clauses were in that deal, who won the deal. I don't know anything. Who, who remembers that? But I remember the feeling I had. And I don't know who said this, but it's not what you say to people. It's how you make them feel. How do you feel walking away? But I think... In engaging a negotiation, do never start with the numbers. Never start with, let's get to it. And I know timing can be a factor as well, but relationships, or if you don't know the person, you know, find out what makes them tick. Uh, and this is where I like in-person negotiations. Now, I know travel and schedules are tough, and most of the stuff is email and phone, but the more personal you can make it, obviously face-to-face -face is best, phone is next, email and text are below those. So the more personal you can make them feel like we have a friendship. Now, again, it's not someone you're going to check in with about your personal life. But, yeah, try to make it a relationship rather than a negotiation. Make it an, less transactional. That's the goal. You know, in psychology, there's an interesting strategy that we sometimes use called the consistency principle of persuasion, which I'm sure, Andrew, you're probably aware of as well. Yeah. You know, that people have the natural tendency to want to appear reasonable. And I think, you know, if you do your preparation and, you know, you can take advantage of that, it can be a conversation where, you know, the other person, you know, they want to appear reasonable. And sometimes it can be a way that works for you. So that would be, I guess, from the non-expert in negotiation, maybe one psychological way of having people take baby steps to your side and kind of see things through your lens. Yeah. 
So, Andrew, there's a question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast, and that is, how do you define relentless? <laughs> I would define it as always wondering what's next. The most successful people are like, yeah, but what's next? Keep going. Be better. And, uh, you know, sort of never coast. Never feel like I've done this, so I'm good. I see a lot of guys my age, mid-50s, that are kind of like, yeah, they're good. You know, they're, right. they're going to coast, whether physically or occupationally, professionally. Stay humble and stay hungry because life moves fast. I mean, things are changing all the time. You're never going to be satisfied, which is fine. But, you know, try to be comfortable in your own skin. Try to be who you are. Allow for serendipity in your life because then you can really be relentless. You can attack what you want, find your passion work towards it, go narrow, go deep, move towards what really lights you up. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you. The Relentless is produced by Slate Studios and Century 21 Real Estate. I'm Dr. Julie Gurner. Thanks so much for listening, and please join us next time. Copyright Century 21 Real Estate, LLC. All rights reserved. Century 21 Real Estate LLC fully supports the principles of the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Opportunity Act. Each office is independently owned and operated. This material may contain suggestions and best practices that you may use at your discretion. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals featured and not necessarily of Century 21 Real Estate.